Slate Spoiler Specials are brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free audiobook when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with a Slate Spoiler Special podcast on Life of Pi, the new Ang Lee movie based on the best-selling novel by Jan Martel. Joining me here in the Slate New York studio is Slate contributor Dan Ingber. Hey, Dan. Hi, Dana. So uh, we saw Life of Pi together night before last, was it? Yes. Glasses and all, we managed to find a 3D screening. Mm -hmm. Thank God, because you're Slate's resident expert on 3D. So we'll definitely get to that and how it looks and how you feel about the 3D technology. But I'd like to start these off with just a quick kind of like it or hate it reaction so people know whether, you know, we're telling them to go to the movie or not. Okay. Me first? Yeah, you go first. I just found it incredibly annoying. And you I would been... recommend against it. I was so excited for this movie, but I can't Because of the book it. or because of the 3D? I liked the book. Um, I don't remember anything about the book, but I, I accept that I liked it. I think, it I, I think that I thought that it was mindlessly good. And I, I know that I thought that the movie would be mindlessly amazing. Um, and I found it mindless and amazing, but... Above all of that, annoying. Just so annoying that I wouldn't tell anyone to sit through it. And you would locate that annoyingness in the movie's philosophy, theology, spirituality, kind of woo-woo side? Yeah, but also, and we can get to this, but I just, it it all comes down to the tiger. And I just, I wasn't buying the tiger. You weren't buying the tiger as a digital creation or as a narrative element? As a digital creation. in, In the book... I bought the tiger, you know, whole hog. I loved the tiger. And what was so great about the book was the way that sort of tiger-boy relationship comes alive. But in, in the movie, I just thought it's just, you know, it's like an animated, you know, gussied up Tony the Tiger. <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> So it's annoying. great. Yeah. All right. Well, let's take a step back for for those who haven't seen at least the trailer to this movie. I feel like everybody in the Western world must know that Life of Pi is about a boy and a tiger and a lifeboat together. Because even right. when the book came out and I sort of wasn't on the bandwagon of reading it, that that much was known known to all. That's the elevator pitch for Life of Pi. But let's set up how that comes to happen in, in the okay. story. So we... We have a frame story in this movie, which is actually not the case in the book. We start off with essentially the story of the creation of the book. So there's this stand-in for Yann Martel, played by Rafe Spall, this young French-Canadian writer who goes to visit a middle-aged Indian man, played by Irfan Khan. Uh, they're in Canada. Do they say what city in Canada? I don't think yeah, they I ever think say. they're in Montreal. In Montreal? Yeah. And he's visiting him in his apartment because he's heard from a common acquaintance that this man, Pi, has an incredible story to right. tell. Mm-hmm. And so then Pai proceeds to narrate his story. We jump in flashback uh, back to India, and mm-hmm. he's played by a young boy. And we see him growing up with a zookeeper father in the town of Pondicherry who runs this very kind of posh zoo yes, and uh, full of sloths and wonderful animals that we see at the beginning. I did really love the credit sequence mm-hmm. in which we see this very deep 3D image of all these great-looking wild animals crawling around in beautiful kind of peach-colored buildings in India yes, with um, a really neat effect also where the words kind of weave in and out of the animals? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, it's a pet interest of mine is how, how do you do 3D credits? Where where in, in on, on the depth axis do you put them? Do you put them all the way in the front, you know, right in the audience's lap or right at the level of the screen? Because, of course, they have to be in front of everything. Or do you try to kind of position them in space? And I thought they it was it was clever the way Ang Lee or, or his credits people kind of mixed it up. And sometimes they were kind of 
behind a branch or something. Right, or peeking from behind mm-hmm. a, a giraffe's yeah. neck or something like that. It is a really luscious opening credit sequence that makes you excited about, about the movie in a way that doesn't necessarily materialize. Yeah. Um, so is there anything you want to say about this, this childhood sequence before we get to Guy in a Boat with a Tiger? Because it's a pretty extended part of the movie. It's seeing what kind of child he was and what his relationship with his father was like and what his relationship with spirituality was like. He's this very religious little kid who's brought up mm-hmm. Hindu but is very drawn to Christianity and to Islam and starts incorporating rituals from those religions into his daily life to his secular father's annoyance. I, I thought it was – it was I, I really enjoyed the beginning part and it, I felt that it was kind of a, a sequence of really meticulously created images or tableau. It kind of reminded me of a Wes Anderson movie a little bit, especially the opening bit with the swimming pools, the swimming pool in Paris, after which he's named Pi stands for piscine, and it's his uncle's favorite swimming pool. Um, I just, I, I was really into that. I thought this is, I love underwater 3D. There's a long history of great underwater 3D. Um, so I was just, you know, pleased as punch with the way it was going. Um and then it starts to get into a little bit of that spirituality stuff and that and those those sort of tableau kind of drag on to this narrative bit where it's not clear where it's going and I'm wondering when does he get in the boat with the tiger. Well, what did you think of the uh, the sacrifice of the goat at the beginning? That was probably the most striking and the most really maybe one of the most violent scenes in the whole movie, including stuff that happens on the lifeboat. Yeah, I I found it disappointing because again the tiger just was this you know, weirdly too smooth. I mean, I think the whole movie is weirdly too smooth, but it begins with the tiger. Um, you know, the way he's creeping down this long hallway to get the goat. And then just what happens when he finally makes that lunge that you've, the whole scene sets up for, he just kind of smoothly slides the goat through the bars. In you a would way. never actually see the goat go through the bars, do you? It's like a magic trick that he could get that wide of a goat through those bars. It reminded me of, of Terminator 2, the famous moment where Jason Patrick, I don't know if it's really famous, where Jason Patrick... <laughs> famous in your mind. Yeah, exactly. Where he just walks, he, he, he melted metal walks through the bars. And that's kind of what happens to the goat, I guess, off camera. But the next thing you know, the, the whole goat is being carried off by the cartoon tiger. And I mean, why am I making a big deal? It just seemed unrealistic, but it just really, for me, set the tone of, you know, this doesn't have this, what's going on doesn't have a material reality. It just looks digital. Right. That And that becomes, we'll get to, when we get to spoiling, that becomes mm-hmm. a big question, whether or not what's happening has a material reality, right? right. I mean, not just in terms of, you know, does, it, does the digitization look real, but just is this happening on, on a plane of, of imagination or, or fantasy? And if so, what happens to the suspense? I mean, there's a lot of layers to the way this story is told. Yeah. I mean, this, so this movie's been compared to Avatar in advance. I don't know if it's being compared to Avatar now in retrospect, um, but in the sense that it's this big budget, you know, whole family, fantastical 3D digital creation with far-out imagery. And I think that it it pulls kind of an Avatar move. I mean, one of the smart things about Avatar is that the whole world that you're in when you're on the planet is kind of this projected... Digital space. He's 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 just project. He's lying in his Sam Worthington's lying in a tube and projecting his mind to the space. It's the same thing that the Matrix does. I think it's a clever way to introduce fancy special effects. You say the whole world is created. Yeah, you put a frame of virtuality around it, and then yeah. you're free to do anything within it. But to me, the life of Pi, it's just it, that it was a mistake. I mean, I understood because the whole. 
theme of the movie is this uh, about make-believe and constructing stories and constructing realities. And we can talk about what happens at the very end. But it, what happens in the book is that it has it feels so real on the boat. That's why that's why I really enjoyed the book. It just it really that tiger comes alive, you know, to use the cliche of reading books. And but in here, I just felt like starting with that goat scene, the tiger was not coming alive. The artifice was forefront, and and that didn't help me sort of enjoy this idea of a fabricated world. It just it it made me worry that the power of storytelling isn't all that it's cracked up to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I I, I disagree that the the. the, the I disagree that the tiger did not seem at all convincing or alive. I mean, while you're aware that he's a digital creation because you just couldn't train a tiger to do all of those things, there were moments where I thought, is this a motion-captured tiger? Or in this particular shot, did they use a real tiger? And I would love to see a making-of featurette about how that tiger was created because I think he has at least as much kind of physical weight and seeming reality in the space that he's in as, say, Gollum does in the Lord of the Rings movies. Obviously, you don't have the performance side because the tiger's not anthropomorphized, which is a good thing, right? He doesn't talk and he's not given any particular, he's not magical. It's not magical realist in that way, right? The movie does still want you to believe that there's a carnivorous beast operating by instinct living in this lifeboat. And I thought for that stretch of the middle of the movie, which we we should cut to now, right? right. So so kid grows up enough to be a teenager, right? Um, kid falls in love, and there's a short little sidebar about that. But the main thing is, Pi the kid, the teenage kid, gets on his ocean gets on an ocean liner with his family and all the animals in the somewhat economically impractical decision to transport them all to Canada before selling them. And the ship sinks, right? The, How one of the, good was that sinking scene? I thought way. it was fantastic. I mean, having yeah. also just seen Titanic on, yeah. on the big screen in 3D, it was it was it did remind me of Titanic. It was oh, yeah. really clear that there were some some shots that were based on it, but it was a really spectacular disaster scene, mm. especially with the animals thrown in. Right? I mean, if you've got him swimming through the completely flooded corridors to save his family, and then suddenly a zebra goes swimming yep. by, it just adds this kind of absurd element. All that stuff's in the trailer, and I think that that's some of the more um, exhilarating moments of the of the movie. Yes. So so he he escapes on a lifeboat and he somehow finds himself in the lifeboat with a bunch of animals. Right. So the, the animals in the lifeboat, let's go over them now so I can make sure that I understand what's happening on both the allegorical and, and literal okay. levels. Um, he wakes up in the lifeboat with a zebra, a zebra that's broken its legs or mm-hmm. gotten wounded in some way and it's leaped from the ship onto the lifeboat. Right. Um, a hyena, right? He discovers there's a hyena. That's sort of hiding under the canvas tarp that's covering yeah. half the boat. And later on, it turns out, oh, no, the orangutan's not initially on the boat, but he sees the orangutan floating toward him right. on a bale of, of bananas. Right. And, uh, and so this female orangutan gets on the ship as well. It seems to be one that he is close to from his days as the zookeeper's son. And lastly... The tiger. The tiger, who doesn't reveal yeah. himself. I mean, that's, that's, that's somewhat unrealistic that the tiger is going to take two full days to reveal itself as yeah. it's curled under this tarp. But, mm-hmm. you know, maybe it was, it was resting from the exertion of the shipwreck. So these animals on the boat, it's, it's not a movie about a kid on a boat with four animals, right? Obviously, yeah. we know it's down to him and the tiger pretty soon. The animals make short work of each other in, in ways that become important later on, but that at the time basically just sort of seem like survival of the fittest, right? The tiger right. is the last one because it's the biggest and strongest. And then comes the middle section of the movie that I thought was the strongest and the closest thing to being a real sort of 
a survival adventure, you know, mm-hmm. sort of a, a, a Robinson, a family, Swiss family Robinson kind of moment in the movie when Pi has to figure out how he's going to make his peace with living in this lifeboat with a tiger. And I know that whenever I would hear about this book or this movie, I would think, why isn't it just 10 minutes long? Why isn't it tiger eats boy game over? And that all has to do with, again, some things that are in the magic realist realm that are hard to believe, but others that seem like real sort of survivalist mm-hmm. practical advice. So he builds this this satellite to the boat by lashing together a bunch of oars and flotation devices and life vests and things and and ties it to the boat so that he's got this separate space to be in where the tiger can't come, come and get him. And then over the course of this period, he tries to figure out, okay, how do I make my way, shimmy up this rope and get food and supplies out of the boat without the tiger knowing about it? Or how do I eventually tame the tiger so that he'll let me get on the boat with him? Yeah, and I think it does sort of capture some of this complicated relationship between him and the tiger, even towards the beginning where he's kind of inclined to feed the tiger, but he's also, you know, the tiger is threatening his life the whole time. Yeah, well, here's where the goat the goat sacrifice scene from the flashback becomes important because the whole idea of the goat sacrifice scene, right, is that the father gives the goat to the tiger in order to prove to the boy how 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 red and tooth and claw nature is, right? right? And that he shouldn't have been innocently offering some meat to the tiger with his hand as he was doing before because his arm could get bitten off. So the question of how much compassion to show the tiger and whether, whether to regard it as, as a legitimate other, you know, who, who you owe some sort of ethical debt to or simply a predator who you fear, it becomes the conflict at the center of the movie. Mm-hmm. And when I hear yeah, myself... Did you, did you even say what you think of the movie? Yeah, when I hear myself describing this middle section, it sounds like a really good movie, especially given the fact that it is so visually inventive and the images are so crisp and clear and kind of at times kind of devastatingly beautiful, at times a little hallmarkishly beautiful, right? right. But I mean, this, this movie is definitely kind of brimming with, with memorable images. But yet, I, I think I came away with the same kind of feeling as you. I just, I really could not get with this movie. It's whole gambit about wanting us to believe in this story and root for the kid and root for his survival and care about individual moments of suspense, will he get bitten right now, seem to be completely undercut by several things. By knowing, of course, that he makes it to middle age and turns into Irfan Khan and tells his story to Rafe's ball. But but also by the fact that everything always seemed in danger of slipping into some gauzy, metaphoric, theological space where it wasn't really what it seemed to be about. Right. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, so what happens, I guess we can just spoil it, that at, at the end, um, Pi survives, the tiger wanders off into the jungle somewhere. They make it all the way across the Pacific to Mexico, right? right? Yeah, they're in Mexico. So the, the I, I thought at the end, maybe there could be one of those kind of, you know, post-credit things where they have a picture of the tiger and then, you know, text on the screen that says the tiger went on <laughs> to get married and have two Become kids. Become an insurance agent. Yeah, exactly. Dan, let me stop you there for just a minute for a word from our sponsor. The Spoiler Podcast is delighted to be sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of digital spoken audio information entertainment on the web. They offer more than 100,000 audiobook titles, which you can play on any device, including whatever you're hearing us on right now. And they have a special offer for spoiler listeners. You can get a 30-day free trial and one free audiobook by signing up here, audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. And as it happens, Audible has Life of Pi, the novel narrated by Jeff Woodman, who seems to be a major audiobook narrator. He narrates dozens of books on the site, including all of Jonathan Safran Foer's work, and gets high reviews as a reader. So Life of Pi, narrated by Jeff Woodman, is available. And again, you can find that by going to audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. So the tiger wanders off, and uh, Pi gets interviewed by insurance inspectors from the shipping company. Since um, he's the only survivor of the shipwreck. The only survivor, and he tells his story about the tiger, and they kind of call BS on him. And then finally... 
he admits or comes up with another story, not totally clear, in which it's the whole tiger thing was just an allegory. The tiger was kind of the dark side of Pi that allowed him to survive and that the hyena was um, the very slimy Gerard Depardieu character. Right, who was a sh- a, a, a co- the who was a cook on the ship? Right, and um, and the orangutan was Pi's mother, and and Gerard Depardieu killed everyone else on the boat, and then the tiger side of Pi came out, and he killed Gerard Depardieu, and then <laughs> and then that's it, and and then we cut but back we to Irfan Khan. We should say that this is all Rafe Spall's interpretation, right? There's also a very, I thought, very dull kind of glossing, you know, a Talmudic moment where they go over the story together, Rafe Spall and Irfan Khan, and yeah. Rafe Spall makes all these equivalencies, like I get it, the orangutan <laughs> was your mother, the hyena was the cook, right? And he right. kind of kind of breaks breaks it all down in the alternate reading. The movie does leave us in some suspense as to which reading we should believe is true, but essentially it's it ha- it hands us this insight, which I think is supposed to be the kind of crowning inside of the movie and, and maybe the book. I haven't finished the book. But that seemed to me kind of profoundly depressing, which is that, you know, if there's if there's a really good story and the truth, you should believe the story and ignore the truth. And so it is with God, Dana. <laughs> that's, the, that's the concluding line after Rafe Spall makes that Your makes that Khan point. says, and so it is with God. And so it is with God. And then and there you have it. That's, like believe his lies, too. I guess. <laughs> it's just I found that so narratively unsatisfying, and that just may be that just may be an ineluctable spiritual flaw of mine. I don't think any story could satisfy me where, after a long suspenseful narrative, I was just told none of that actually happened. This other horrible thing happened that we're not going to give you any more details about, but just believe this is true because it's it's wholesome for us all somehow. Well, well does the movie so the movie doesn't hold up for you or for me as as you know a narrative masterpiece. But does does it hold up as kind of a Kiwanis Kotze, uh microcosmos, you know, get high and watch it and Well, love actually, it? that was the lead to my review, is that this movie makes you feel like you're stoned. I don't right. know if it would actually be fun to see when you're stoned, especially if you're someone who becomes hyper-analytical like right. me, because then the woo-woo kind of uh, metaphysical claptrap would become even more annoying. But just on a sheer visual level, yeah, the spectacle is quite incredible. But... I'm not someone I don't think who can just drift away on visual mm-hmm. spectacle when the story that it's cloaking seems seems just just somehow basically lacking. Yeah, you know what the, the movie reminded me at one point of 2001. Did that there's a there's a sequence in the middle I was hoping we could talk about where it's I guess a dream pie looks into the water and has a dream and it and the camera sort of sinks into the water and it gets very digital. And crazy, and there are non-narrative, completely yeah. non-narrative, right? There's sea monsters swishing by through the depths, and mm-hmm. he eventually sees the the Simsum. That's the name of the ship that that sank, right? The Japanese yeah. ship is just at the bottom of the of the ocean. It's it's a visually incredible moment, and I actually did love that it became unanchored from narrative right then, and sort of went spiraling into Pi's brain. I, I don't think it's incredibly well integrated with the rest of the movie, but mm-hmm. I did look forward to those moments. I just it reminded me so much of the of the you know the swirling psychedelic stuff in two thousand. And then I started thinking about, you know, our, our Pi and Tiger as Dave and Hal and and wondering if there was, you know, if there's something – I like 2001. I didn't find it annoying. But but why couldn't I get on board? Because that sequence was, was fantastic and, and fabulous and, you know, in the, in the true sense of the words. So uh, what's the difference? I don't know. I mean, for one thing, I was just going to say that I think the, the, the questions in 2001 are much smarter. The relationship right. between Dave and Hal and the kind of questions that, that it raises about, about what humanity is and what technology is and how they relate to each other 
just just seem like more interesting questions to me than the very um, what is it than the very six of one half a dozen of the other kind of question of which of these horrible versions of the story of someone losing their entire family in a shipwreck right. is true. And so it is with God, Dave. <laughs> right. Well, that's another thing is that is that God doesn't just sort of get plugged in at the end of 2001 right. as an explanation for everything. There's an open-endedness, an open-endedness so extreme that nobody really knows what the end of 2001 is about. Mm-hmm. But at least it's not, oh, G-O-D, you know, stamp of approval at the end of the movie. <laughs> um, so what did you think of the – what did you think of the effects? It sounds like you liked them the, – the digital effects, the 3D. I mean I think we could separate those two things out. I liked both the digital effects and 3D, I guess, if we're separating them out. I thought the tiger was a very impressive creation, technically. I, mm-hmm. I, I believed in his, his physical reality, and it scared me when he seemed like he was about to chomp Pi's arm off, even though I knew that all the arms were going to make it back to, to Montreal. I loved the meerkats, which I guess were all Oh, the island. Let's talk well. really quickly about the okay. island as well, because that's a, that's a visually incredible passage in the movie. Mm-hmm. So, so shortly before he... He winds up in Mexico, right? Very shortly before. In fact, there's an ellipsis in between the island segment and him being rescued from the shipwreck that makes it seem like, oh, after that, it was a piece of cake, right? right. <laughs> but he bumps up against this island that couldn't possibly exist on Earth. It seems to be made entirely of the tangled roots of the mm-hmm. dense trees that grow all over this this island and is populated solely, except for insects, I guess, by these, uh, by these meerkats that cover the entire surface of the island like little almost like little worms popping up out of the ground. And that yeah. was a really witty and fabulous image when you first see the meerkats popping up. Yeah, and they're so adorable. And there are so many of them, I think, that it's one place where, for me, I wasn't distracted by by the by the lack of, of you know, real lifiness to them. Um, but I, it, one of the things that comes up in the movie, in the, in the script, I guess, is this idea of looking into an animal and seeing the soul in its eyes and it's part of the kind of woo-woo stuff but that's where that's what i i think what made me unforgiving on the on the tiger's artifice is there there are several moments where it's a close up of the tiger's eyes and where you and pi are staring into that totally computer animated tiger and you're supposed to just be you know transported by the understanding that an animal has a soul and it's not, you know, just a uh, goat-eating machine. But, and so the, I, that's where – versus the meerkats where there's just, it's just supposed to be this weird island full of adorable meerkats. But at those moments when you're staring into the tiger's eyes, I'm pushing you on this just because I'm, <laughs> I'm confused that, that you thought it was realistic. You want to know, did I feel a profound spiritual revelation about man's relationship to mammals? Did, did, you, did, did you feel like that – I mean, if it was a real tiger, when you look into, you know, the, the eyes of the black stallion or, or the, the donkey, you know, Balthazar or whatever, do you think that animal has, has a soul? I mean, I do, but I think that's a natural inclination. But, but when you looked into Richard Parker's eyes— Right. Well, we haven't even mentioned that the tiger is called <laughs> yeah. Richard Parker, right, because of a bureaucratic mix-up between him mm-hmm. and, it, and the person who delivered him to the zoo. Um, no, I don't think I felt much when I looked into the eyes of Richard Parker. But I think I was blaming that on the script and the general, you know, the general manipulative, manipulativeness of the movie as much as the digitization of the tiger. I think I didn't feel the tiger's soul because I felt too intensely that the movie wanted me to feel it, and I just resisted that sentimentalization. I think it was a real tiger, no matter how lousy the script. I mean, I think in the in if you look the tiger in the eye in, in the Siegfried and Roy three D spectacular, you'll think those that's an, an animal with a soul. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that has animal has meaning. No, I I don't know. I just I think it was it was a fatal flaw that you have these moments where you're supposed to stare the animal in the eyes and care, and it's just impossible. No, I don't, I hear I don't that. blame I hear the script. That. I hear that. And I love the uh, negative comparison with the Siegfried and Roy <laughs> spectacular. Now, there was artistry. Yeah, you know, I, I, I saw your review. You described it as, as being immersed in caramel. And that's very much the feeling that I had, that it was just kind of soft and smooth and gooey. And, and, and therefore, it didn't really feel like there was real space on the screen. And I wonder if that's just because of the way that the, you know, the live action and the animated stuff fit together or if it had to do with the animated stuff not quite looking real so it wasn't clear how it fit in space yeah maybe so I mean I wasn't thinking so much visual caramel as kind of narrative caramel right. you know the, and the, just the, the stickiness of, of the story but I, I definitely felt some bedazzlement at the mm-hmm. uh, at the at the use of, of 3d and some moments where it was incredibly crisp and beautiful more so when it wasn't trying to integrate life and fakeness it was when right. it was frankly artificial and kind of glorying in that artificiality that it was at its most beautiful like the, the dive into the ocean yeah. that you described. Yeah, I, I just love that and wish there were more 3D sequences like that. Yeah, it makes me wish that Ang Lee would make more dreamscape folktale yeah. kind of movies because mm-hmm. I do feel like this movie is not at all cynically made or sort of, you know, um, there, there's nothing about it that doesn't feel deeply felt by him, you mm-hmm. know. And so maybe it will move other people who are more open to this kind of story than I am or people who really love the book and want to see it's pretty faithful to the book, I gather. Um, what did you think of the boy? It's never acted before. The teenaged pie, the, the actor, the main was, one, yeah. The actor's named Siraj Sharma, and you just told me he was it's his first time acting. He was a complete novice to the mm-hmm. screen, which makes me more impressed. I mean, it's a very physically demanding part, that's for sure. He basically, I'm sure, when he was filming, it had to be alone in a room, you know, full of I don't know what, like CGI dot markers right. for where the tiger was going to be. You know, acting with tennis ball on the stick as they used to do in CGI, and I think he brings a lot of of realism to it. Yeah, I thought he. I thought he was. I thought he was pretty good, <laughs> considering. I mean, I was thinking about that issue that he's got. He's acting off of no one. Yeah, and he's, if, given that he's never acted before, it's it's yeah. pretty impressive. Impressive. That's the part that holds the screen. I think is that middle thirty minute stretch. It's when other people get on screen. I love Irfan Khan, the older Indian yeah. actor who plays him as an adult. But that part is just so. It's just so Deepak Chopra. You know, it's just oh so a guy dispensing new age wisdom that there's not much he can do with it. And just all the close ups of Rafe's ball looking bewondered. Right, wide-eyed and, and yeah. bedazzled with the story that he's about to go home and type and turn into a, an Oprah's book bestseller. Right. All right. Well, Dan, thanks so much for coming in. You actually have brought me a lot of new perspective on the, the 3D. And also, I now I now feel ashamed that I cared about the tiger. I want to watch again and see if I can see his fakeness. Because I tend to be very hard on CGI animals in movies and, and, and think that they're fakey no matter what. But I really bought Richard Parker. I Try reading the book. I think you'll buy him more in in the uh, literary version than the digital version. Yeah, you were holding him up to a higher standard yeah. of your memory from the book, no doubt. All right, well, thanks, and please come in and spoil another movie with me soon. I'd love to. Thanks. Our producer is Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply